Thank you, Ian. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church at this time. And let's take our Bibles. We will continue our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47. You know, many take kind of a consumer mentality when it comes to church. As long as I get what I want, I'll be happy, and I will continue to have my patronage there. But should there be something, anything I don't like, I can always take my business elsewhere. The early church described in Acts chapter 2 was quite different from that ideology. It was a church that came together to nurture people. You know, when we think about Mother's Day, what I think about when it comes to moms, particularly my mom and my wife, who is mother to my children, I think of someone who is committed to nurturing their kids. They want to see them grow to be mature, responsible, productive adults. And as you think about it, that's really spiritually the job of the church as well. When people are born again, when they come into that personal relationship with God the Father, there's a responsibility in the church to see those people grow, to move from spiritual infancy to a depth of maturity, to see them become productive servants of God. And we see a prescription for that right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now this idea of comparing the early church and what they were doing to moms isn't unique to me. The Apostle Paul said this when he sent his letter to the Thessalonians. He said, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you came, became so dear to us. That's really the idea of a church's ministry, moving people toward maturity and productive lives. That's what Paul did by ministering to the church at Thessalonica. That's what the people did here in the church that was first founded there in Jerusalem. And that's what our church should do as well. We should see believers moving toward maturity. And when Luke talks about this in this passage, he shares with us, first of all, core values of a healthy church. What we're finding is a case study in a healthy church, and we find first those core values that mark a healthy church. So look at verse 42 with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 42. And again, I am getting some misfires on this. Uh, Pushed in the button, but nothing's happening. So I may have to do without the slides. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> so let's, let's look at the core values of a healthy church. And let's talk about that first value that we find here in the 42nd verse. And that is, we commit to studying God's truth. Notice verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the first core value that's mentioned in this passage is a commitment 
to studying God's truth. When the Scripture says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what the Scripture is talking about is the Word of God. We have a record of the apostles' teachings. It's the New Testament. The epistles. Those are, in a nutshell, what the apostles taught the people in the first century. And we have the benefit of studying these letters. It's the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's teaching that the apostles gave to the early church. And we can have that same teaching, and we can grow from those same truths. Now, when the Scripture says in this passage that they devoted themselves to these things, what does it mean? When we devote ourselves to something, it means that we give ourselves fully to it. If you devote yourself to study of the Word of God, it doesn't mean that you just learn what the Word of God says. It means that you also implement its teachings, that you live it out. And I like the way the New King James Version translates this passage because if you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, what the NIV translates as devoted, here in this passage it says they continued steadfastly. In other words, when we look at the Word of God, it's something that we endure in, that we continue in, and that we do so without wavering or faltering. That's an important component in seeing that a church is growing. You know, there are many churches today that don't feature the Word of God. They might reference it in some obscure way, but as far as digging into the Scripture, learning what it has to say, and then encouraging people to put these principles into life, fewer and fewer churches are following that model. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Scripture tells us this, that God gave us pastor teachers, apostles, evangelists, and prophets, and that the work of their ministry is until we reach unity in the faith and acknowledge the Son of God, and look at this, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What God wants us to do is develop in our understanding of who He is and in our application of what He says. That's what maturity is. And then the 14th verse goes on to say, then we will no longer be infants, in other words, immature believers, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. God wants us to be people who are growing in the Word. And the key to spiritual maturity is a deeper understanding of God's Word, but more than just an understanding, an application. When we learn something, are we putting it into practice in our lives? Those devoted to God's Word, recorded here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, were. And that made them a healthy church. Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 was encouraged again in the Word of God, when it says this, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 
For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and aside to myths. That's the danger of not teaching the Word of God. Instability, immaturity. God wants us to be mature followers. So the first core value of the early church, commit to studying God's truth. But then we come to the next core value, and that's we are to connect with one another in meaningful worship. In the early church, they studied the Word. They devoted themselves to it. But they also devoted themselves to fellowship. Now what is fellowship? Fellowship is to share with others. And even more than that, the original language in which the Scripture was written gives us a word that expresses fellowship. And it means that we are to participate in one another's lives. We are to have a sense of belonging to one another. It was inconceivable to the early church that you would belong to the church and not be a part of the church. It's interesting because some of my friends who are pastors have those church membership roles that are membership roles of a thousand with an attendance of a hundred. And the idea is, I belong to such and such a church. I never show up there. But my name is on a membership role. And because it's on the membership role, I'm a part of that church. Listen, fellowship isn't talking about the place where your membership is. It's talking about the place where you participate with fellow believers. That's the idea. God wants us to be people who participate with one another, who interact with one another. This is something that the early church devoted itself to, and as a result, there was true fellowship that took place in the church body. Our culture is somewhat individualized. We like to go it alone, kind of a lone rangerism, and that's fine as far as being an American citizen, but we can't import that into our philosophy in the church. We have to understand that as a part of this church body, not only am I seeking to grow, but I am seeking to grow others. I'm to interact with them. I'm to engage with them. I'm to participate with them. That's the idea. As believers, we should be committed to fellowship, which means I am committed to my fellow believers right there on the pew with me, right in this sanctuary with me. I am committed to them. That's the idea. The writer of Hebrews framed this well when he challenged us, let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, fellowship is impossible if we're not here to participate and to fellowship. It's pretty basic, isn't it? Kind of bottom line, isn't it? If I'm never with somebody, I can't share fellowship. 
So there's a consistency that's called for in the Word of God. And that consistency encourages us to be with our fellow believers. And to not only just show up, but to consider how is what I'm doing going to positively influence the people that I'm around. How many of us think, before we come to church, what can I do or say to encourage someone today? That's a real basic application of this passage. A lot of us are so busy, especially if you have kids. Oh, man, am I ever going to get these kids out the door? Ugh. I can remember those days when we had kids at home, and I yelled my head off, getting them into the car, getting them to cut it out in the back seat on our way over to church, and then first thing when you walk through the door, well, God bless you this morning. <laughs> Frustrating. Hard. But listen, we need to be thinking, how do I minister to those around me? How do I encourage them? Sometimes it's just our presence when they see our consistency in coming and being a part of the church body. That's encouraging to people. It's discouraging to see big holes in the pews where people used to sit. The encouraging thing is when we see consistency on a part of the fellowship. And that's important, especially with summer coming up. Isn't it easy to look at the weather report and say, wow, this would be a good day for a cut. I hear the fishing hole beckoning. Got rod ready. I'm out of here. Now listen, I know we all go on vacation. I'm going to be guilty of that this summer as well. But when we're here, we should be here. We should be fellowshipping with one another. That's the idea that we get across in this passage when it's talking about fellowship because there's an interaction that we need with one another. In Romans chapter 12, there's a series of passages from Romans chapter 12 to Romans 15 where the Apostle Paul talks about our devotion to one another and how we aren't in our church with just us. We are in church with other believers and we have an impact on those other believers. In Romans 12.10 it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. So that's interactive, isn't it? It requires me to be with other people to interact with them according to brotherly love. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So I'm to build other people up. That's what mutual edification means. I'm to think about how I can help others in their spiritual journey. And then Romans 15, 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ. So again, the idea of togetherness, right? We're a unit and there is to be a connection that we have with one another, and we are to follow Christ together, verse 6, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Scripture is clear. God wants us in one another's lives. That's the idea, and that's what this early church was doing. They were devoting themselves to this. 
And then we come to the next core value. We continue to worship at the Lord's table. Now, notice it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and I like the way it's framed here in the NIV, to the breaking of bread. Now, breaking of bread can be a common euphemism for just sharing a meal together. But the way this is framed in the original language, this is more than just us coming together and eating a meal together. I had a friend that called that foodalship. When you come together and eat together, uh, foodalship. I don't know, it's a pretty good coined word. But that's not what it's talking about here. When it says the breaking of bread, often what we find in first century writings, the breaking of bread referred to the Lord's table. And that's one of the ordinances. You know, I find it significant that this command, come together and observe the Lord's table, and baptism, which is also a command of the Lord, which we looked into last week, they're both mentioned within just a few verses of one another, right here in Acts chapter 2. Luke is emphasizing that these two core values are essential. Baptism, remember, communicated that I am following the Lord, leaving my old life behind, and I am connecting to a body of believers. That's why God commanded it, so that we would put that into practice in our thinking. But here he's commanding the Lord's table for many of the same reasons. Number one, when we reflect on the Lord's table, we are looking back to what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's a command that he's given us, but it's a command with a purpose. It's not just a ritual or a rite that we observe. There's a purpose behind it, and that purpose is to help us remember what Jesus did for us. But there's a reason that we don't do either baptism or communion all by ourselves. We share communion with the body of believers because it's an expression that I received Christ as my Savior, you received Christ in the same way, and we are in Christ together because of His sacrifice. That's why communion is such a precious, precious part of our worship. And the early church devoted themselves to this. And then they called upon God in prayer. This is another core value. Prayer. When we look at that 42nd verse and we see this call to prayer, I think that this is something, again, that churches need to commit to. We have opportunities for prayer in small groups. We have opportunities for prayer in our group that meets downstairs on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. I'll get it right this time, Don, wherever you are. At 9 o'clock, it's, it's important that we commit to, to opportunities like that. And then something that I believe our church is going to move toward, having more opportunities for corporate prayer. When we had the National Day of Prayer, that was a time of sweet fellowship. It was a time of wonderful prayer. And you know, something that's unfortunate, often we don't find people gravitating to prayer until there's a catastrophe. Remember back in 2001, 9-1-1, prayer was full when we offered an opportunity. We said we're going to pray for our nation, we're going to pray for safety, we're going to pray for the families. Just about standing room only 
when it came time to pray. When the church goes through a hurtful or difficult time, prayer meetings are full. But listen, sometimes we get so in the zone to where we just say we're doing ministry, we're doing our thing, that we forget the power for ministry comes through prayer. When you look in the early church, 120 people became almost 3,200 people. Why? The power of prayer. They prayed, and in one day, the church was added to it. And I'm not talking about numbers. Numbers don't matter. What I'm talking about are committed disciples who were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, who were committing themselves to the fellowship within the church body, who were committing themselves to the ordinances, the commands of the Lord, and people who were devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer was the vehicle that God used to see these things happen. And you know, the scripture is very clear that we need to seek God to see ministry take place. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Praying for ministry to happen, that is the key to ministry happening. It truly is. And so that's why God calls us to that. So if you want to nurture your faith, if you want to see yourselves grow in your relationship with God, these are the core values that you need to have. These are the core values that our church should have. Expressing their importance as I'm doing this morning. But then Luke moves into the characteristics of a healthy church. And what he mentions first is the overall attitude of this early church was a fear of God. Now, notice verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, the first part of this, they were filled with awe. When we look in the original language, the NIV tones this down a little bit. They translate the Greek word phobos. We get our word phobia from it. When you have a fear of something, you have a phobia. That's the word that's used in this text when it says that they were in awe. They were in fear, in fear of God. Now, what does it mean to fear God? What it doesn't mean is having a barrier between us and God to where I can never come to Him or approach Him in prayer. To where I view Him as somebody who is just kind of up in heaven, watching me, waiting for me to mess up so He can lower the boom. That's not the idea of a godly fear of God. Fear of God is a recognition that God is so much higher and greater than I am. That I don't bring him to a level to where I feel comfortable with him. I look at him as a being that is vastly superior to me, and I reverence him for that. I understand his love, but I also put him in a place of respect. Now, some of you 
had fathers who were challenging. It was hard to love your, your dad, and um, sometimes it was somewhat earned because they were just difficult to get along with. I had a wonderful dad, and I'm thankful for that. And you know, I loved my dad, but I also respected him and feared him when I would step out of line. Not that he would abuse me, but that I would disappoint him. That was the idea that I had. I did not want to do something that would disappoint my dad. And so this understanding of love and fear was taught to me by my dad and his example. And that's the way it should be in our understanding of God. Those of you who had a challenging father will have a hard time understanding this. But there is that balance that can take place between love and fear. And that's what God is calling for. And look at what else this 43rd verse says. They were filled with this godly fear, this awe, and God was doing something in their midst. There were many wonders, miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. Now, in this first century church, God was doing amazing things, amazing work within the church through the apostles. God was establishing the leadership and the authority of these people, of these apostles. And there are passages that talk about the signs of an apostle that demonstrate their authority. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. One of the purposes that the apostles had, and we'll see this in the book of Acts, where they do healing, where there is a person raised from the dead, we're going to see some amazing things that are done in the book of Acts. And part of the reason was to establish that these apostles were sent by Christ to do the work of Christ. So it's something that's very important. And then we also find this in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now look at verse 4. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That fourth verse sounds a lot like what we've seen here in the book of Acts, doesn't it? God did that to establish their teaching but also to engender fear in the presence of God. You know, when we come together and we worship, there is the presence of God. And we need to come into this place not viewing it as an assembly, not viewing it as just a gathering of people, but these are fellow believers indwelled by the Holy Spirit, In the presence of God, there's something special that takes place when we come together to worship. Sometimes we are so geared toward our preferences in worship that we forget of the power of worship and the fact that we have come here to do a very holy thing, lift up the name of Jesus Christ. To make sure that those around me are exposed to worship, lifting up his name, honoring him. That's what God wants us to key in on. So the first characteristic of the early church, they chose to fear God. The second characteristic, they chose to care for one another's needs. Look at verse 44. 
And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, unfortunately, there are some people that take this verse and they distort it. They say, see, this is an early example of communism. They all came together and they pooled their resources and nobody really owned anything and it was distributed. Well, let's understand the difference between this and what happens with communism. This was voluntary. Communism is not. They came and they shared their resources with one another out of love and concern for one another, seeking to meet one another's needs. Let's think of the historical setting. When somebody came to Christ in the first century in Jerusalem and they are baptized and the whole community witnesses them leaving the Jewish community, uniting with the followers of Christ, they lost home, business. They lost many, many friends. Often it meant the loss of almost their life, and in some cases, as we'll see, it meant the loss of their life. They sacrificed much. But the church body, rather than standing by and saying, isn't it a shame what happened to so-and-so over here when they came to faith? That's just too bad. What did they do? You know, Brother John over here was put out of his home because he chose to follow Christ. I have an extra bedroom. He'll stay with me. I have some extra food. We'll see that he doesn't go hungry. We have some clothes that we can give. We have an extra house that we can allow him to stay in. They pooled their resources and cared for one another. Now, I have to say this. If you have been a person who has experienced difficulty as far as an operation or several other things that take place in this church, we have a great community within this church body that extends love and care to those who are in need. And I'm thankful for them. And you know what? They're not mentioned much. It's done behind the scenes. And they don't want me to mention their name, so I won't. But I will say this. I'm proud of this church body and the way that it cares for others when we become aware of a need. It's something that's great. And it's something that speaks of what we should do. That is the characteristic of a church that seeks to follow Christ. These people sacrificially cared for one another. Look at verse 45. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. So very clearly, one of the characteristics of a really healthy church is caring for one another's needs. Then we come to the next part. The next characteristic is we choose to be a part of a church community. Look at verses 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, the NIV, again, waters this down a little bit in its translation. The literal translation that we find in this passage is a little stronger. It says that they were continuing with one mind. It was more than just continuing to meet together. It was that there was a oneness, a unity 
that was taking place in the early church. And notice verse 46 says they continued to meet together or continued in one mind in the temple courts. Now, because there was not opportunity for a large church in those days, one of the larger meeting areas would have been one of the, tor- the, the, the courts of the church. So often they would go there and they would carry on worship of God and pray together. And it did two things. One, it gave them the opportunity to come together as a body. But number two, think of the testimony that it was to those who had come to the temple to worship God not through Jesus Christ, but through a religious system that they had bought into. This was a testimony, an outreach. And you know what communicated so clearly? Their unity. Their oneness. They were coming together and they were in fellowship and the church was seen by the world and they loved what they saw. As a matter of fact, that's brought out when we go on. And it says in verse 46, they broke bread in their homes. Now, here it isn't the breaking of bread that we saw earlier, but this is fellowship, or like I said moments ago, foodalship. And they were coming together, they were eating together, and they had glad and sincere hearts. And all of them were inspired to praise God. But then look at the last part. And they were enjoying the favor of all the people. That word translated favor very simply means grace. You know, church should be a community of grace. We should show favor to one another. We should show kindness to each other. The last characteristic that is mentioned in this passage is that they considered God to be the one who grew the church. Look at the last sentence that we find in this chapter. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Where does true church growth through evangelism come from? Us? No. A new program? Hardly. An evangelist? Nope. It's the Sunday school answer that you usually give. Where does it come from? God. Right? But it's the truth. God is the one who sees to the spiritual growth of the church. God is the one who adds to the church. We're to be faithful to the core values that are mentioned in this passage, and God does the work. That's the idea. Commitment to what God outlines for us God gives the increase as He sees fit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church at Corinth was not like the church in Jerusalem that's mentioned here. A lot of static, a lot of argument. There were groups that would gravitate to personalities, and some would gravitate to Apollos, some would gravitate to the Apostle Paul, and they would argue with one another, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, and a church divided resulted from that. But in writing to the church at Corinth, Paul wanted to give them perspective. And this is the perspective he gave. 
I planted the seed. Now here he is talking about the seed of God's truth. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. You know, that's such an important perspective for the church body. Sometimes we can have that favorite teacher that we gravitate toward. This guy has it all down. Anything that he says, carve it and granted, it's gospel. And then somebody will have a teacher that takes a dissenting view. And they'll gravitate to that teacher. And then when the two get together, they bang it out. (laughs) They argue with one another. Differing approaches, differing understandings, but the same God who ultimately brings the growth. That's the way we need to approach things. When there are things in the church that you look at and you say, you know, that's not quite my cup of tea, understand that God doesn't necessarily check in with us and see what our preferences are when he moves people to do things. God does the work. And we need to embrace that and count on that and consider that what goes on is the work of God. I'd better do my best to work with God. To make sure that when he moves me, I say yes. To make sure that I am committed to seeing God work and use me however he sees fit. This morning, we've seen the importance of having a church that comes together in unity. That has fellowship around God's word, fellowship around prayer, fellowship around the communion table. We've seen the importance of entering into a relationship with God through a personal faith in Jesus Christ and following his command, seeing that he's Lord, we follow him in baptism, we follow him in communion. This is what God prescribed for the early church, but this isn't unique to the early church. This is something that God wants to see in any church. And this is a model that God gives you and me so that we will follow and see God bring the increase. Wouldn't it be great to be like this church where we see God adding to our number daily? That's what God wants. That's God's plan. That's God's model. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the example that was given so clearly that we are to be followers, that we are to be those who who seek to build one another up in the faith all the while praising you and thanking you for the work that you do. May we be faithful to that calling, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The reliance on the Lord that Pastor Rob was just talking about is actually what this whole song is about. So please stand as we sing. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here. 
I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found is where you are, and where you are, Lord, I am free, holiness is Christ in me. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. So teach our song. So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you, and every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. We're going to sing that chorus one more time, just voices. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Let's pray.
Many times, Father, at church, when we pray, we always pray in we and us. But sometimes, Lord, we need to pray in a personal pronoun, I. When, Father, did I stop worshiping you? Father, when did I stop reading your word? Father, when did I get so critical? Father, why don't I pray more often? Or, Father, why don't I see you in everything, Father? Father, why don't I call for you for wisdom and guidance? Father, when did I stop having devotions with you? Help us, Father, to come back to you. Amen.